This is the Bartender Journey Podcast. I'm Brian Vincent Weber. This is the Bartender Journey Podcast number 176. And this is the podcast that talks all about bartending and cocktails and spirits. Well, we're just back from Tales of the Cocktail. We talked about it some last uh, on a previous episode. And we're going to... We're going to get into it again. There, a lot went on. It was an action-packed week. So I just wanted to share with you uh, the sound that I woke up to most mornings uh, in, from my room in Hotel Monteleone. There was some weird instrument outside on the street somewhere, and I never did find it, but I heard it uh, about three or four times in the morning. It sounded like this. Weird, right? And and then the trains try to play along with the with the instrument. It sounded like <laughs> I thought that was just an interesting little sound clip there. Well, it's time to go out and explore tales and meet some interesting people and learn some stuff. All right, so we're here in the Hemingway Suite at the Hotel Monteleon, wonderful place, and uh, right next to the pool. And we're talking about Soshu today. So uh, please introduce yourself and tell us about it. I'm Stephen Lyman. I'm a uh, shochu certified shochu advisor, and I work with the Japanese shochu, sake and shochu makers association uh, in New York, and uh, do what I can to promote shochu, which is a traditional distilled spirit from Japan. Unlike sake, which is brewed like beer, beer is really the closest relative to sake. Uh, shochu is uh, distilled, and you can make it from about 50 different base ingredients. So it's more about how it's made than what it's made from. So traditionally, the first shochus that were ever made were rice shochu, so those were essentially distilled sake, but uh, barley shochu, sweet potato shochu, soba shochu, which is buckwheat uh, in English, and a number of other styles have become popular. And uh, what makes it similar to sake is that it's made with uh, koji, which is a, a mold that grows on rice and uh, converts starches to sugars, kind of like we do malting. For Western, you know, beer or, or whiskey, we'd, we'd malt the barley. With uh, shochu production and sake production, you actually use koji to convert the starches to sugars, so the yeast can convert the sugars to alcohol. So, what was it, ko- koji? What? Koji. And, and what is that exactly? It's actually a it's a mold. Okay. So it's a mold that grows on rice, and it as it eats through the the rice uh, kernel, it'll actually convert starches to sugars. Okay, got it. As a byproduct. Okay. So. With wine, you essentially crush some grapes and you ferment it. You let it ferment based on the natural organisms in the in the environment. Uh, with beer, because you go through the malting process, that is the additional stage of production, just like in sake, where you use the koji to convert the starches to sugars. With with wine, the grapes have sugars naturally, and so you're 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 immediately converting the sugars to alcohol. You don't have to go through the the starch to sugar process. Oh, got it. Okay, interesting. We I was tasted through about 10, 10 here, and they're they're all quite different. And is that are there regional differences, or is it because? Of, well, just talk to us about that a little bit. Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, about fifty different base ingredients, but uh, shochu is um, it is an extremely broad category uh, because decisions about fermentation, whether you're using a pressurized, uh, you know, vacuum still or a, or a normal pressure still. Um, the only rules basically are using koji, using a pot still, it can only go through the pot still once, and then after distillation you can't add anything other than water. You can age it in wood, in clay pots, or in stainless tanks, so all of those are going to change flavor profiles. But then there are regional variations as well. Uh, there's four shochu styles that have Appalachian of Origin status from the World Trade Organization. So rice shochu from Kumamoto, 
uh, is, is protected. Uh, sweet potato shochu from Kagoshima is called Satsuma shochu. Uh, that's the that's the birthplace of sweet potato shochu, and then iki shochu is barley shochu from Iki Island in Nagasaki, which is the birthplace of barley shochu. And then finally, uh, awamori, which is a distinct distilling tradition from Okinawa, which is now part of Japan, uh, is the fourth designation that has that status. So, it, uh, is it used in cocktails much at all? At all? It's begun to be used in cocktails, uh, particularly in the States, but then uh, there's a really famous cocktail bar now in Tokyo called Gen Yamamoto, which is, uh, he, tra- he trained in New York. He's a bartender in New York for a long time, and now he's doing a cocktail omakase in Tokyo using shochu. Oh, nice. Cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, creativity there. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities, I would say, with, with it. Uh, so it's, um, they were all 24% ABV, except for one. So, what's the uh, why is that? I mean, you don't you don't see a lot of spirits in that in that uh, range, you know, other than liqueurs, maybe. So the lower alcohol is actually uh, primarily due to the Japanese preference for drinking while eating, and a foolproof spirit's going to overpower food. Uh, where shochu, because it's slow proof, actually goes really well with food. Uh, but the 24% is curious. That's not available in Japan. That's only available in the States because of California law. So in California, you can sell shochu with a beer and wine license if it's 24% alcohol or less and it says soju on the label, even though it's made in Japan. Okay. So that's confusing to consumers. Yeah, that is confusing. But So what's the typical ABP in Japan? In Japan, uh, there are regional differences, but it's about 20% in uh, Oita and Hokkaido, and then other parts of Kyushu in Japan are usually 25%. Although uh, there's black sugar shochu, which you probably tried one of those today, uh, which is from a cluster of islands called Amamiyoshima. Uh, it's the only uh, sugar, it's the main, most shochu has to be, can't be made from a sugar-based uh, ingredient because of the koji process. Okay. But uh, that's the one exception, is the black sugar shochu, which is made from sugarcane, and that uh, has to be made in Mamiyoshima, which is a cluster of islands off the coast of Kagoshima. And they typically uh, are 30 to 35% alcohol, that specific region. Oh, okay. A little bit higher proof. I found it interesting that uh, several of them are made from sweet potatoes, but you, you never see sweet potatoes in, um, in uh, Japanese cooking. <laughs> Not very often, although in, uh, so I mentioned Satsuma shochu earlier, which is the sweet potato shochu from Kagoshima. They do use a fair amount of sweet potato in cooking there because the earth is really, um, it's really volcanic, it's really rocky, and sweet potatoes grow anywhere. So one of the staple foods in Kagoshima uh, is sweet potatoes. They, at times they've had a hard time growing rice, and so sweet potatoes have become part of the local cuisine. Cool. Interesting. Well, I apologize, I have to run. But uh, it's such a pleasure to meet you. So great talking to you. Great. Appreciate the opportunity. Cheers. Well, there's a spirit I knew nothing about before, and I uh, was glad to learn a little bit about it. Uh, interesting uh, products. They were, uh, as I said, they each one tasted very different from the other. And, uh, yeah, go find some. If, you, if you're up for a challenge to mix that into a cocktail, uh, you might find it interesting. Or just, or just drink it neat. It's uh, really interesting stuff. Next, I met up with the husband and wife team who started Bittered Sling Bitters. Uh, and that is great bitters, they're from Canada. And it's Jonathan Chovinek and Lauren Mote. We met in the Carousel Bar in the Hotel Monteleone lobby. Right, I'm here with Lauren and Jonathan from Bittered Sling. And uh, so tell me about your, your company, about your bitters. Uh, our bitters have been around uh, and available on the market since 2012, but we started making them back in 2008. Um, 
At the time of launch in 2012 in Western Canada, so in Vancouver, uh, it was part of the first Tales of the Cocktail on tour Vancouver. And since then, we've we've enjoyed a great relationship with not only just Tales, but in, in other uh, markets where we've been fortunate enough to do business together. And it's helped grow our brand beyond uh, Western Canada bitters to uh, a bitters now distributed in seven countries, including the Tales of the Cocktail proprietary bitters, which we created and launched in 2015. And so, Jonathan, you're, you have a background as a chef. You're a chef, yeah? Yeah, I've been cooking for uh, 23 years, and uh, I met Lauren in 2010. And uh, my introduction to Lauren was actually through the walls of jars and uh, tinctures and bitters that she had uh, at the, the bar she was working at at the time. And uh, my buddy and I were taken on a three-hour-long odyssey of taste <laughs> as she made us cocktails and brought jars over and we tasted and smelled. And, uh, and so, of course, immediately I asked her out. <laughs> and, uh, and then last year we got married. So it, it's been quite the journey. And uh, in between, you know, we've launched a, a, a really diverse line of cocktail modifiers that uh, people really dig. Yeah. yeah, so I want to hear more about those. What, what, what's the new product? So uh, at Tales of the Cocktail this year, we've got two different products. One is our uh, global flavor gift pack. And that has six expressions in a 25 mil format, which is great for uh, a travel pack. Um, so in that, we've got uh, orange and juniper, grapefruit and hops. Uh, we've got uh, Malagasy chocolate, plum and root beer, moon dog, uh, Kensington aromatic, and uh, what's the last one in that one? That's six. Oh, it's a mouthful. And then in the Tales gift pack, uh, we partnered with Tales of the Cocktail last year to do a proprietary pack uh, with expressions based on Tales of the Cocktail on the road. So we have bitters that uh, are uh, flavor statements on Vancouver with our Gastown bitters, which is flavors of wild celery. We have the uh, Palermo bitters, which is flavors of Buenos Aires, and it's deconstructed tasty notes of the Malbec grape, uh, but specifically designed for aromatic cocktails. We've got the Condesa Bitters, which is an aromatic Latin uh, black pepper expression from Mexico City. And then, of course, we've got the Home Base, the French Quarter Bitters, which is a gentian-forward, sour cherry-based, uh, beautiful uh, classic cocktail expression. So is making bitters, I don't know who to ask this question, is making bitters more like bartending or more like cooking? Uh, I think we, we both have our own interpretation on the answer to that question. However, we've managed to create our own method of doing it, which incorporates the best of both. Um, I would say for me, I make bitters based on the fact that specific expressions have been missing from the Canadian landscape. And also just in the general history of bitters, they've been missing from the global circuit for quite some time until 2006 when uh, the Bitter Truth in Germany launched their products um, as well. A few years before that was, uh, you know, Reagan's number five, or sorry, number six orange bitters. So since then, I mean, none of those things ever came to Canada. So we're sitting in, you know, 2008, 2009 at that time and, you know, creating bitters based on the flavors that were missing in, in making classic cocktails that would be um, adequate, adequately delivered uh, based on what our American brothers and sisters would have access to. So that the way I build bitters is based on the flavor profile of 
building each individual ingredient to to sing a song in that harmony of ingredients that is an expression of what it is supposed to be. So if we were trying to recreate Peychaud, which is very challenging, uh, we would create something that has a very similar flavor profile that makes a Sazerac taste like a Sazerac if we can't get some of the ingredients in Canada that are required to make a Sazerac. So that's sort of my thinking on it. And then with Jonathan, he... Uh, I, I know he will want to answer for himself, but uh, I will just give a little sneak peek taste on that. Um, for him, building bitters is like building a sauce. And so he takes each ingredient and builds layers of flavors based on the best way to express that specific flavor. But then again, working with alcohol is very different from working with fat or working with, uh, with um, dry ice or proteins or whatever it is. Like it's a different method of, uh, of production. And so alcohol it has a lot of variables and a lot of things can go right and a lot of things can go wrong. So it does take a lot of trial and error to get them correct. So yeah, we'll ask you that question too. Is it making bitters more like uh, cooking or more like bartending? Well, it, you know, it, it is the creation of a, a formulation that makes sense on the palate. And with bitter sling, what we're looking for is um, uh, basically like a, a root note that is a, a primary botanical. For example, our Malagasy chocolate. We're using dry roasted cacao beans, but that's not the only ingredient. So like a chef, we're building harmony uh, flavors and chorus flavors. It's actually, you know, it's a it's a combination of alchemy of the kitchen, but it's also like when you sing. So when you sing uh, with and you put two or three voices together, you start to get uh, overtones and harmonies that exist uh, where no voice is actually singing. It's just uh, the the voices colliding in the air creates these overtones. Flavors do very similar things on your palate. So we're creating a a flavor spectrum in each bitters that is designed to go with the uh, sort of the, the root note. Uh, we also use our, our primary flavors like our um, uh, Soyuz cherry. We use the cherry not as a cherry flavor. We don't want to make cherry bitters that taste like cherry. We're actually making a very gentian forward bitters that is balanced in extreme bitterness is balanced by that cherry flavor. So, you know, we're, we're looking for the balance on the palate within the bitters, which in itself is inherently bitter. Each of these flavors then works extremely well in cocktails as uh, a modifier to enhance and lift the flavors of the spirits that are in the cocktails and also give the bartender a, a wide spe spectrum of creativity in creating their signature cocktails. I like, I like what you said about overtones. You know, in music, um, another word for that is harmonics. And yeah. it, 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 I don't know how much you know about it, but it, certain frequencies will ring with a certain note at, at higher frequencies. So, but uh, that's yeah. an interesting uh, correlation. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Mark Miller is a, a famous chef from uh, America, and he wrote a, a, a book in the early '90s uh, that I, I read, and, and he wrote a whole essay on flavor notes and tasting notes and how they correlate to a conductor conducting an orchestra. And being a guitar player, when I was a young cook, I read this, it made perfect sense. And it actually is the foundation with which I've been operating over the last 23 years of, of cooking and creating those harmonies, those overtones, and like you just said, those, those harmonics of uh, flavor. You know, the harmonics are uh, uh, different uh, octaves of the same note uh, played in pitch. 
Cool. Well, I was just over a cure with Neil, and he was, and I noticed his bitters on the bar there, and he decants them all. I just made a comment that it, you know, it was a cool presentation, or whatever. And he said, "Yeah, well, you know, it used to be we had, there weren't so many cool bitters available, so we used to make them all. But now there's so many cool things available, we do, you know, we do buy them all, but we put them in those same bottles that we've always used. But uh, I was like, yeah, making bitters is is hard, isn't it? He said, yeah, I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> it's hard." <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very challenging, and like I said, it takes a lot of trial and error because it's not necessarily just about the combination of ingredients, but it's also uh, the frequency or the volume of each ingredient in conjunction with the ingredient next to it, which becomes a different reaction as well. Um, you know, Jonathan touched on cherries. I mean, the reason why we use cherries is because when put under the influence of alcohol, cherries do eventually become licorice. Um, you know, peaches do have become some sort of yeasty quality. Uh, celery does become some sort of interesting vegetal Pinot Noir, New World tasting note, which is kind of interesting. So we're trying to predict exactly how uh, the ingredient is going to react when under alcohol so we can pair accordingly with different ingredients and in the right volume sequence. Um, so the bitters that you try today from Bittered Sling will taste the same in two years from now because we, we have to uh, trial and error the way that that's going to actually break down and work together with each of the ingredients together. So it does take a lot of time, but it's really fascinating, especially, you know, Jonathan mentioned he's 23 years in the food industry as a chef, and for me, I've been bartending for 16 years. And so most of my career has been spent on the analysis of different flavor compounds as they pertain to bartending and as they pertain to the study of alcohol. And uh, so I, I think that's what does make the entire lineup and portfolio of our bitters so unique and interesting that they don't all taste the same at all. They're all completely different, but there is like sort of like a signature in each bitters that when you do taste it, you know that it's a bittered sling product. And uh, we've worked very hard to create that sort of like secret subdued signature in each one. So did I read somewhere that you won Diageo World Class in Canada? Yes, in 2015, I won uh, Vancouver Magazine uh, Restaurant Awards uh, Bartender of the Year. And about a month later, I competed in one of the most challenging competitions that I've ever done. So that would be world class. And uh, last year, in 2015, it reached 55 countries. Uh, I was uh, grateful to have the opportunity to work my ass off <laughs> and ended up winning uh, for Canada and won the chance to represent Canada on the global stage in South Africa uh, a year ago, August. And that was one of the most incredible experiences because I think it helped to springboard a lot of the work that we do, not just worldwide, but a lot of uh, penetration into the United States for, for what we do, uh, which is really great. And this year, I am winning, well, sorry, I've, I, I've won it. I've, I found out two months ago that I am being inducted into the Dame Hall of Fame this year at Tales, one of only five women and the first Canadian, only the third international uh, inductee. So I'm, I'm really grateful and excited for that. And it just seems to be happening. so much happening for, for Bittered Sling and the associates of our company every year, and we couldn't be more happy about that. That's awesome. That's awesome. What, what advice would you give somebody entering competition sort of for the first time? Have fun and work really, really hard. The most important thing for bartenders to realize is that uh, if somebody comes to your bar and does a pop-up competition and the judges aren't spitting their cocktails and they're wasted, generally speaking, that's not the right idea of how you should put yourself forward in a competition. I think 
you know, doing a couple of those smaller ones is great to shake the nerves out, you know? So if, but don't take it so seriously. Have fun and still work really hard. And it preps you for the, for the monster competitions that are the ones that are going to help to curate your career going forward. You'll, you'll get out of this experience as much as you put in. So World Class is a great example and, and lots of portfolios have like their big international competition that they do every year and no two are alike in any way. Um, but World Class is a great example. You, you don't have to carry any of the brand uh, of the brand spirits in your well in order to compete. Anyone can submit a recipe, so that's easy. Anyone can submit a recipe, a good recipe. And from there, it's, it's time management and it's also reading the rules. It's incredible how many bartenders get disqualified because they don't read the rules and they don't ask the questions and they just assume because they didn't know that they'll be, they'll be given like a wave through. It's not like that. So I think any bartender that's willing to compete in anything and put themselves out there, the whole world is, is watching a lot of the time. And so it's a, it's a great opportunity to really build your brand and your career, uh, but it can also be really detrimental if you don't act accordingly. Do we, uh, can we taste some bitters? Well, I was, uh, <laughs> was going to give this to you. This is the Kensington Aromatic for you to take a little uh, uh, keepsake. But yeah, we can definitely taste them. Here, I'll open that up. So the, I'll give that to you. You have longer <laughs> <little> <laughs> Oh, no, I'll open it for you, and then you can administer the tasting. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the Kensington Aromatic Bitters uh, were a bitters that we came out with in 2014. And it was a, a, a celebration as the classic cure-all. We needed something in our portfolio that any bartender anywhere on the planet could reach for a bottle of this and use it as a classic bitters in like a Manhattan, a sour, an old-fashioned, anywhere that calls for an aromatic bitters, regardless of what color aromatic bitters it calls for, uh, this one will work to balance out a cocktail, providing everything else is in line in your recipe. Um, and it's... Kensington is a, oh yeah, have a taste. So we're just, Jonathan is administering. Let's put a couple of drops on the hand, have a little smell, a little taste. And the reason why we, why, why we administer on the skin is your skin actually neutralizes the alcohol. So when you taste it, it doesn't taste like alcohol. It just tastes like the pure expression of what the bitters is. You know, I never knew why we tasted bitters that way. That's exactly, it's exactly why, because your, uh, your skin just neutralizes it right away. Um, Bitters, the reason why alcohol-based bitters are, um, are better than any other substance you can extract with, unless of course you have an alcohol sensitivity, is that the alcohol assimilates very quickly and it gets absorbed into your bloodstream very quickly. So whether it's a drop on the skin or sipping a cocktail or just having it in sparkling water, it goes into the bloodstream right away and because you know bitters were one of the original medicines and so it's, it's designed like that on purpose and just evolves over time. Um, so, but tell us about the flavor, the Kensington flavor. So the, the Kensington is, uh, I mean, spice forward. You get all of those big uh, uh, classic all-spice notes, uh, but you get a lot of botanicals that are going to work really well with uh, oak aging. So uh, whiskey cocktails, uh, uh, tequila, mezcal, uh, bourbon. Uh, anything that's got oak on it, it's going to work really well. So it lends itself extremely well to classic cocktails, Manhattans, old fashions. And uh, it's just a, a big, beautiful, aromatic uh, bomb. Oh, yeah. I can see with this with mezcal. That would be amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you, guys. I don't want to keep you much longer. It was such a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for your time. Thank you for your time. 
You meet the coolest people at these things. Uh, my name is Jordan Bushel. I'm the national ambassador for Hennessy Cognac. I told Jordan the first time somebody ordered a Hennessy and cranberry from me, it, I was completely freaked out. I, I didn't think, I was like, seriously, in the same glass? Um, well, it, it's really interesting because the, the certainly the, the history of cognac uh, relates to cocktails, but at some point in history, mainly the late 1800s, uh, the little bug known as phylloxera got over to Europe destroyed all our grapes, uh, and and kind of gave cognac this um, reverence, where it became so expensive that people said, oh, you can't mix with it. You shouldn't mix with it, perhaps. And yet, reverence is uh, is scary. Respect is healthy. So respect is uh, respecting the flavors and mixing in the right way. And to be honest, cranberry can, can go quite well because berries and red fruit uh, do work very well with the flavors of Hennessy. They're not in the cognac itself, but uh, they mirror them quite well, and especially the tartness, um, followed by the lingering sweet finish of cranberry juice, goes quite well with Hennessy. The phylloxera crisis caused this, uh, you know, I call it the grade nine uh, economics of the situation, supply and demand. Okay. You, It all went away, so the demand was still high, the supply was low, it became very expensive, and so people looked at it in a new way, the way we might look at Bordeaux wine, where it's super expensive and we don't necessarily understand it, we just understand when we see those beautiful Bordeaux glasses going across the dining room floor at our favorite restaurant, we know somebody's ordered a pricey bottle of wine. The same is true of the snifter. The snifter was invented uh, by a, a cognac importer into the States to make cognac differentiate itself. After phylloxera, it was very expensive. So when you had brown spirits in a glass, I didn't know whether it was bourbon, rye, scotch, Irish whiskey, or cognac. But we all know if you want to spend money, if you're willing to spend money on something, you want to be known to have spent that money. So they created the snifter to show off the fact that you bought cognac and not any of the other brown spirits. Unfortunately, the snifter is such a wide base, it actually leads to um, different notes or different... Uh, uh, aromas within the cognac that, that aren't necessarily um, pleasurable in a lot of ways because the surface area is so high the alcohol evaporates first and yet in cognac we would drink it out of a tulip which is a far more uh, subtle shape uh, almost like the blossoming of a flower uh, and it reveals the cognac slowly over time though uh, as in anything if you like your cognac with cranberry you like your cognac uh, on the rocks you like your cognac neat you like it in a snifter you like it in a tulip uh, to each their own, everybody has their own palate. Right. And I think we're in the, a very exciting day and age. I mean, you and I are sitting here in New Orleans at Tales of the Cocktail to celebrate the cocktail. And, and the cocktail is exactly that. Uh, as you said, it's the, you know, it's, the, it's the freedom of the moment to try what you want, when you want it. You know, the mojito from Cuba, because it's hot there, you know, it, it certainly wouldn't have been invented in New York in the winter because you don't want refreshing then. You want refreshing when you're on a beach. You want strong and bold when, uh, when it's cold outside. You want to warm your soul. So it's uh, whatever you want in the moment is the right cocktail for you. And I don't think we need to hold uh, a pretentiousness over that situation where we hold people accountable for what they're drinking and rather celebrate what people are drinking and celebrate the diversities. There was a time where cognac was like, that's what you drink after dinner and you drink it a little warm and it's, you know, that's very celebrated and, you know, and you shouldn't use that in a cocktail, but, but why not? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a ritual and it's, cognac is one of those, those moments where you feel, you feel taken care of. It feels like 
the proper culmination of an evening where you've gone from pre-dinner drinks, something refreshing and light, maybe a vodka soda or a, or a glass of champagne or, or anything in between, a light Chardonnay, light uh, Prosecco, Riesling, anything. Uh, and then you, you've built in intensity over the evening and then by the time you reach that end where that warmed cognac would have been served, you're, you're at that moment of, of fulfillment where you've, you've uh, experienced all these lovely flavors over the evening, you've had great conversation hopefully, enjoyed a, a warm e evening with friends and family, and then that warm glass of cognac really uh, exemplified the evening or tied it all together. And it's not wrong, though um, we tend to drink cognac a lot more at, at room temperature, and uh, the warming of it is, uh, can, can also bring out the alcohol side of it, but I think if you get it served in a, in a room temperature environment, uh, in a glass, and you can experience the warmth uh, from the, the spice notes from the wood, and then the, uh, the matured fruit notes within the cognac itself, you're going to have an excellent end to an evening, and I don't think you're in a wrong place there. All right, so we're here in front of Hotel Mazzaleone in a Maserati. How did that happen? Hey, guys, we're here with the McAllen Rare Rides. We are escorting fine gentlemen and ladies throughout the French Quarter during uh, Tales of the Cocktail 2016 with the McAllen Rare Cask. The McAllen Rare Cask is from just the top 1% of casks, aging on the McAllen Estate at an extremely high proportion of first fill sherry oak casks. Um, absolutely exquisite whiskey. You should get some classic McAllen sherry oak notes, chocolate, cinnamon, nutmeg, but what I love really about this whiskey is that it really brightens up on the back um, and wakes you up while you drink it. I love the McAllen Rare Cask. Um, and I love driving a Maserati. <laughs> Who's better than us? <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is wonderful whiskey. So, how we, how long is it aged? Can you tell us? Well, there's no age statement on it. What we try to do here is just choose the cask when it's ready. You know, I I don't think a lot of people know that one cask aging next to another cask for the exact same amount of time in the exact same part of a warehouse can come out completely different. Yeah. Um, so, if you have a great whiskey maker like Bob Delgarno and you've got great ingredients, which we happen to have uh, some of the best casks in the world, um, you can make great whiskey. If you age a whiskey for X amount of years in a lousy uh, cask, it's going to taste lousy. Um, we have the best ingredients in the Scotch whiskey business, so we create exquisite whiskey when the cask is ready to be consumed with the rare cask. Um, we have age statement whiskeys, we'll always have age statement whiskeys, but in this case we decided, you know what, let's focus on quality and uh, put the whole uh, thing to rest and have a little bit of fun. Yeah. I had a great opportunity recently to um, taste some whiskey at a, at a Rick house, and uh, you know, they were stacked six or eight high or whatever, and uh, so the whiskey had been laid down at exactly the same time. So we tasted one from the top and one from the bottom. Awesome. And it was awesome. really a cool experience. And it was, uh, they were way different than each other. Um, well, I mean, every cask is different. I've had 70-year-old whiskeys from McAllen right out of the cask that were virtually clear in color um, uh, and tasted like the most complex things I've ever had. I've had whiskeys from McAllen right out of the cask that were very dark in color and less uh, complex than than others. So it really takes a great whiskey maker to make great whiskey. 
people are surprised to hear that color comes naturally on a whiskey in the first three or four years of whiskey's aging, and there's never a guarantee it will ever take any color at all. So most companies will just zap it with artificial color. At McAllen, everything we do is 100% natural all the time. So we have to work a little harder to uh, keep the color consistent and the flavor consistent every time we vat our whiskey. There's some talk about um, terroir and whiskey. And uh, so what, what, what are your thoughts? Some people say it's important. Some people say it's not. So what's your thoughts on that? Well, in our case, the terroir really comes from the oak. So not so much about the flavor of the place, uh, but 80% of the color or final flavor and 100% of the final color on all of our whiskeys comes from our oak. The majority of the oak that we source is from um, Spain, the forests of northern Spain. And everything that's um, a Scotch whiskey is going to be a used barrel. But. Um, so I don't spill any more of this lovely liquid. But of course. Right. Okay, we're going 20 miles an hour and it feels fast in this car. <laughs> I had it on the highway earlier. We, we, yeah, we opened it up to about 70, but that was about as good as it got. Um, so yeah, everything in the Scotch whiskey biz is is a used cask. Um, really, we we love the fact that we're seasoning with sherry that gives us such backbone and, and real character to our whiskeys so we can't um <laughs> hey, how you doing? Good? How you doing? it's a party how you doing? <laughs> beastie boys love it love it <laughs> that's cool We'll talk to you next time on the Bartender Journey Podcast. Cheers.